So I've been, in the last few months, years, uh, I guess you could say, um, I've been walking through this, this process of, of seminary and, and ordination and, and all these things, and, and I thought it might be good, and this is not just to like, tell you about my life, uh, but this actually applies to our passage today, to kind of walk you through the process of what it takes in the EPC to go from, I want to be a pastor, to you are a pastor. Um, in the EPC, we have a, a lengthy process that involves, number one, a required seminary degree. Uh, but before you even get into seminary, you are examined to see if you are fit for ministry. They have committees at the presbytery level who ask you all kinds of questions before you even get started to, you know, to kind of give you the nod. And at that point, you can start to pursue a Master's of Divinity degree. You go for three or four years of seminary. You're, sit, you're sitting with people. You're taught. You learn. You, you practice what you've learned. And you go through these years of study, and at the end of it, you have a whole series of insane examinations. Uh, they had written exams that were over the course of this, this past summer, where they tested everything from Bible knowledge to theology to church polity to can you read and be proficient in Hebrew and Greek and all these kinds of things. And they probably had about eight or nine hours plus of just examination in written form. If you pass that, they put you in front of a committee of about 10, 11, 12 people, and they grill you for a solid three hours on everything, oh, everything, to make sure that you are where you're supposed to be. And, and if you pass all of those, then as you have a call to a church, when a church calls you to be their pastor, you then get to go to the presbytery floor. Uh, in my case, that will be this October 2nd. Uh, as you've called me as your pastor, the second is when the next presbytery meeting is, and so I'll get to stand in front of the floor of about two, three hundred people, and they will grill me for as long as they see fit after they've heard me preach. And if they, together as the body of the presbytery, decide that, that it's it's worthy candidate, then they will lay hands and ordain at that point. Now, I don't tell you this to, to look and say, woe is me, your life is so hard. Um, I tell you this because this morning we're going to be looking at kind of the first thing when we're looking at practical things as, as being a Christian. What are the things that we need to worry about, that we need to focus on? And the first one is that we have sound biblical understanding and understanding of doctrine so that we as a people of God, not just the church and its leaders, but you individually as a Christian have the ability to cipher out and spot false teaching amongst our churches and culture today. Why are we talking about this? This seems a little mundane. I would love to talk about things like character and the fruits of the Spirit. We're talking about this first because Peter, or sorry, not Peter, Paul, talks about this first. In both the letters to 1 Timothy and then the letter to Titus, you know, we have a greeting where he kind of builds up Timothy and Titus. He says, essentially, hi, grace to you, peace to you. And then the first thing he gets into in both instances is this idea of false teaching and being on guard about it. And so let's just really quickly, look, here's what it says. This is the beginning of Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Today, when we write letters, we say, greetings. This is how they did it back then. It's a little bit longer. We should do it this way. Wouldn't that be neat if you got a letter, right, in that fashion? But then he goes on. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 
The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. So the first thing he hits to Timothy, before you get into any of your character issues and what leaders should look like, false teaching is rampant. You've got to be on guard. Titus, sorry, just one more verse. Titus, he, and talking about the elders, anybody that aspires to be an elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Paul, in almost every letter that he writes, right, we're looking at Timothy, Titus in the next few weeks, almost every letter that Paul writes has an instance of talking about false teaching. And so whether he's writing to the church at Rome or the church at Galatia or Ephesus or Crete or Corinth or Thessalonica, it doesn't matter. Every one of them has discussion on watching for false teaching. Paul's been to these places and he knows who the people are within their midst that are stirring up small issues of controversy that become big things. And so here's why we have to pay attention. You might say to yourself, I don't know that this is an issue, Vince. I haven't heard false teaching in our church. I would invite you to think of it this way. If the churches in biblical times that were led by the apostles themselves and had people in them that literally were witnesses to the resurrection of Christ can have rampant false teaching inside of them. None of us are safe. Can we agree to that? Right? Like, if, if Paul, churches that Paul was instrumental in starting and is writing letters to can have an impermeation of false teaching, well, then certainly I'm not going to say, well, my church isn't going <laughs> to. No, that would be arrogant. And so we have issues of false teaching that easily can creep in. And so it's worth looking at what, what does it look like when false teaching comes into our church? Every single body that I've ever been a part of has to some degree seen these things come in. And so today we're going to look at a couple different things. Number one, how does false teaching in the church start? Number two, how does it get a foothold? In other words, how does it get to stay and not get squashed out right away? And then number three, how can we as Christians seek to ensure that we don't fall prey to false teaching, that we keep sound faith and doctrine together? And then perhaps kind of a 3B, why does all of it matter? All right, so number one, how does it start? There's a couple ways that false teaching comes in the church. Some of it's really blunt. Some of it looks like this. Use your miracle spring water, the doctor said, and permanent damage of the eyes is healed. Uh, Peter Popoff is a very popular uh, televangelist preacher, and a lot of times if you watch TV after 11 o'clock at night, you'll see his ads on TV. And so a lot of times we see these things and we laugh at them because, you know, who, who hasn't wanted to have a little miracle spring water pouch sent to their house to be able to hear or heal their eyes or whatever, their ailments, right? If it worked, I think this guy would be way more popular. 
I'm just going to say it. If, if this guy had healing water that made blindness go away, I don't think he'd have to buy a TV ad time. I think the word would just pretty naturally spread. Right? And I love that you get a free faith toolkit whenever you get his spring water. I'd like to know what the free toolkit contains. Probably an offering envelope. Right? Because eventually they're going to ask you for money. We've all seen these. I don't know about you, but right in our backwoods, you know, I personally know people who have been irreparably damaged by the ministry of Ernest Angeles Cathedral. And the prosperity and health and wealth gospel that gets taught there and the cultishness with which it does it. I've met people, I've had them in church that have been part of those places and have come out. And the amount of healing that has to take place is devastating. And so the one way that we see false teaching, sometimes it's just this blunt thing. We're confronted with it. We, we look at the, the books on the shelf today and we can see your best life now. Well, Jesus tended to say that your best life is probably going to be later, not now. Hopefully this isn't our best life because I don't know about you, I, I think we could do better, right? And so we hope in Christ to, to the next life rather than this one. But sometimes it's obvious. More often than not, though, it is not an obvious thing. False teaching comes in through very subtle, conniving ways. And the first place we see this is in Genesis 3. Right? We see Eve confronted by the snake, by Satan. And what does Satan say? He doesn't say, hey, you should eat of the tree. You shouldn't care what God says. No, that's not how the serpent comes at Eve. What does he say? Has God really told you that you can't eat from any tree? Do you notice the subtle twist there? They're allowed to eat from any tree they want, just not the one. And so she says, Yo, we're allowed to eat from the trees, but we're not allowed to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil or touch it. And you already noticed that, that Satan has twisted her because she says not touch it. God never said they can't touch the tree. They could climb the tree if they wanted to. They just can't eat from it. Right? And so then the serpent doesn't say, you should eat from it. Right? It's not a peer pressure of like an elementary or middle school kid that says, do the thing you're not supposed to do. No, what does he say? If you eat from it, you will be like God. Listen, do whatever you want, but the only reason God's telling you don't eat from the tree is because he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know the things that he knows. And if you ate from that tree, you would know the things that he knows. You could be like God. Right? It's, it's subtle and it's slow and it starts to work itself out in the mind of Eve and that's how sin enters the world. More often than not, False teaching can be this subtle, small, twisted thing. It comes in very, very creepily. It makes a little bit of sense at first even, right? It twists something we know just a little bit and then grows and grows. Right? Another way that false teaching can come into the church is through what I call counter-false teaching. So what happens is we have these obvious things, these obvious issues and then we counter them, and in an effort to do that, we swing the pendulum so far the other way. That's how we get churches that are hyper-fundamental or legalistic, right? There's such a desire to drive out any potential of sin that we squash any kind of joy in the midst of it, which is not how God calls us to live. That's the serpent saying, didn't God say you can't eat from any tree? No, no. The Lord calls us to enjoy his creation and to be a part of cultivating it and, and, and working it out and growing it and, and inventing new things in the midst of what he has made. We're not supposed to be this, this super hyper-restricted fundamental, we only live in this little bubble and if we eat something and it tastes good, we're probably sinning. No. But what happens? 
People are so worried about the sins of this world that they counter so far to the other side. There's a church in Topeka, Kansas called Westboro Baptist. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. But they, ha- they are the ones that will protest with like anti-gay signs at funerals. Um, they hold up these ugly signs. And so what's, what happened here? There's an issue with the sexual ethic of our time and churches are okay with things they shouldn't be okay with. But what happens, they swing it all the way the other way and they forget to show even an ounce of compassion and love. And they're not very winsome. They might have the right fundamental idea, but it's so twisted that it doesn't yield any fruit. And that's certainly not how we are supposed to approach the culture. And so that's the second way. However, the number one reason that I see for the start of false teaching is pandering to culture. Churches do this. Churches pander to the way that culture is moving. As culture gets more liberal, so does the church. And it starts to give up on certain teachings. It starts to ask questions like, well, is God, is Christ really the only way? I mean, surely good people I know who think a little bit different about how the gospel works are are good people. They're loving, aren't they? And so we don't want to upset the status quo, and so we go along with culture. We see this with the sexual ethic in the church. As culture progresses and approves more of things, so the church approves more of things. And this is how it's done it forever and ever. We don't want to upset people, and so slowly we compromise on little things until they grow into larger issues. How do these things get a foothold, though? Wouldn't you think that the church would be in in self-interest of protecting itself? When these things come up, why, why why don't they get squashed? Why do we have a continuation of, of, of false teaching that grows in our midst? And here's by far the, the absolute number one reason this happens. We as a church, I'm not saying Stowe Prez, but the, the world's church, Christians alive today, are by far statistically the least biblically literate generation ever. Ever. They did a LifeWay study back in 2019, and they found that about 36% of the Christians that were polled admitted that they read Scripture on their own at all. So there's 64%, about two-thirds of all Christians admit that they don't even read the Bible in their, on their own whatsoever. They don't pick it up. We've got seven versions of them on our shelves at home, don't we? I can tell you there's hundreds of Bibles in this building alone. <laughs> But we don't pick them up statistically. We don't. We don't read them. Here's, a, here's an interesting one. Barna Research Group did the study. 80% of believers say that God helps those who helps themsel- help themselves is found in Scripture. Is, is that phrase scriptural or not? They say yes. That's absolutely in Scripture. God helps those who helps themselves. By the way, it's not. Just so that we can be abundantly clear. That's not how God works. God helps those who could not help themselves because we're all totally depraved and lost in our own sinfulness. And so he picks us up and his spirit grabs a hold of us and that's how we come to know him. We don't pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. God provides the boots and the straps and then picks us up by them. That's how it works. Questions like this. Can you name a minor prophet? Can you name six disciples of Jesus? These are things that cannot be answered by the vast majority of Christians today. It's fun watching everybody in their head going. 
<laughs> I'm not going to ask her to raise hands if you can name six of them. <laughs> but, but surely, if you can't, maybe this evening go home and, and do some Googling and maybe spend some time, right? We cannot question false teaching if we don't know the truth. How are you going to know if something's not accurate if you don't know what the truth actually is, right? And so by far the number one reason that false teaching in the church gains a foothold is because most people don't know enough scripturally to be able to say otherwise. So you get these churches, some of them large, some of them small, where absolute ridiculousness is spewed out from the pulpit. And the congregation will sit there and go, yeah, it's powerful. And no one questions it. It's the number one reason. The number two reason is this. We absolutely hate controversy. We hate it. We don't like calling people out whatsoever. And so a lot of times what happens is someone says something a little off the rails, but we don't want to correct them because, well, that seems like we're nitpicky and mean and, you know, we don't, we don't want to offend. And if somebody is, is, is teaching things in the church, maybe they're at a Bible study and they're teaching things that are utter ridiculousness, you don't want to call them out because, you know, maybe they'll get mad and then they won't volunteer anymore. Or maybe worse, they'll leave and they'll take their tithing dollars with them. And so we love to just kind of brush things under the rug. And so stuff gets a foothold. And here's the thing. False teachers aren't all wolves. It's not like they're all terrible people that come in here. We don't have this group of people that come into this church and say, I'm going to lead them astray. It's well-intentioned, right? But false stuff comes in, and we don't want to deal with it because, number one, we don't know how, and number two, we don't want to offend or trample on people's toes. And here's a third reason. Um, success. A few weeks ago, I mentioned a Mars Hill podcast, right? The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, I know some of you have really enjoyed going back and listening to that. It's this fascinating look at, at leadership and how this mega church could rise to be kind of the biggest church in America and then crumble overnight. And the question that they ask eventually in the podcast is how, with this obvious falseness going on and this obvious mess, how was it allowed to continue? How could one guy be so wrong and so false and so abusive of the church and not get checked? And the answer was the church was growing. It was exploding. They were adding hundreds a week. How can something be bad if it looks like it's working? Right? This is what happens when we as a church, we value growth by numbers so much that it comes at the cost of other things. A biblically sound and faithful church cares about growth. Don't get me wrong. We really do but not at the cost of truth. I'd rather have a church of 20 that are gospel sound than a church of 2,000 who will just take whatever I say and run with it. That's dangerous. That's really dangerous. And so when we combine a lack of biblical knowledge, a lack of willingness to confront and perceived success, we can see how false teaching so easily can gain a foothold in our world and in our churches today. And so Paul warns Timothy and Titus, and not just them, but all the churches, you need to be on guard about this stuff. So what can we do? Here's some ways that we, as, as a church and as a people, seek to destroy false teaching and protect ourselves. Um, and this is hard stuff. The number one way is we have to study the Lord's word and the doctrine of the church. We have to. There's no shortcut on this one. 
There's no substitute. There's no cliff notes that you can go by that, <laughs> that help you, you know, do all this, that, that help, help you avoid reading the breadth and the depth of God's word to understand what he actually says. Right? Think about it. We have that ability. We have copies upon copies of Bibles. We have tools that help us. You, get, you come at me and you say, I want to study the book of whatever, Ezekiel. I'll give you five different ways that you can do that. We'll give you books to study. The folks that we have here that are leading Bible studies, I can tell you that each time when they, when they seek to lead things, like a study on Daniel or whatever, they will agonize over what things to choose, what resources to pick. We have an abundance of things to help us study the word on our own. And as a Christian, I can tell you, your growth as a follower of Christ will stagnate. You cannot gain maturity in Christ beyond a certain milk level point until you start to unpack and read scripture on your own on a regular basis. You just simply cannot do it. And then the second thing I would suggest is this. Get familiar with church doctrine. And this sounds boring. I'm going to get into the mundane, boring stuff now that no one wants to wrestle with. We as the EPC, we subscribe to a thing called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Right? If you wonder what that is, it was in 16, uh, I think 46, the Westminster Assembly came together. They met at Westminster Abbey, which is why it's called the Westminster Assembly, which is why it's called the Westminster Confession. And they were trying to figure out how they could have this concise kind of summary of, of things they believe from Scripture. And so out of that was born this Westminster Confession. And it became the standard of doctrine in the Church of Scotland. And from that, you know, Presbyterianism came out of there. And so we now, most Presbyterian churches will hold the Westminster Confession of Faith as kind of their standard. Um, as a matter of fact, on October 2nd, before they will lay hands to ordain me finally and be, be done with this whole process to start as your senior pastor, they, they make me subscribe in writing to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And if I have any issues with that, I actually have to write these papers that explain why I take issues with a certain thing inside of it. It's not just for pastors and elders. It is a beautiful, rich document that helps you understand what we believe as an evangelical Presbyterian church. It has chapters that deal with different things. So you can say, what do we believe about God the Father? And it'll tell you, you know, God the Father, a whole bunch of different things we believe. And under every one of them, you see little scripture citations. So the Westminster Confession tells you, this is what we believe. And by the way, here's the 15 passages where we get this from. And so it's not this man-made thing just, just sitting on its own, but it's really just a summary of what Scripture says about these things. And so if you want to know, kind of in a short point, what does the Bible say about what I'm supposed to believe about who Jesus is, his nature, fully human, fully divine, how he works, how faith happens, how we are called to be Christians, what it means that God chooses us, how the church is supposed to function. What's the deal with baptism? What's the deal with the Lord's Supper? All these things, you can go and you can see these points and then you can look at the references and read the scripture that tells you why we believe it. It's a beautiful tool. Use it as the body of Christ to start to gain an understanding. Most people that sit in denominational churches, uh, they couldn't tell you more than a thing or two about what the distinctives of that denomination are. Right. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you can tell me what it actually means to be reformed and to be Presbyterian versus Methodist? 
A lot of people could tell me, but, but think about that. And this isn't a guilt thing. I'm not trying, if you can't answer that question, you know, it's not like you're a bad Christian. That's not what I'm saying at all, but just think about those things. Do you know why you want to be at this church other than I like the friendly people that are here? What is it about what we believe that gets you excited and jazzed versus a church down the street? What are those things? It's worth knowing what they are. And I'll tell you this, false teaching is too invasive, too subtle, too sneaky, too conniving to not be prepared to see it. So I, I, I exhort you to be a prepared people. Right? Be like the Bereans in Acts 17. that Everything they hear gets tested against what we see in the scriptures. I'm going to promise you this as a pastor. In the next five years, I will guarantee you that I will say something from this stage that is not perfectly theologically accurate. I'm a human being, sinner and flawed. I guarantee you I will say something. And I can guarantee you this. It won't be on purpose. It won't be malicious. It won't be me trying to lead you astray. But something will come out that's just not quite... mm. And my prayer and hope would be that there would be somebody in the church that catches me afterwards and not in a spirit of condemnation, but lovingly says, hey, that, that wasn't quite right. And I can't promise you that I'll never say something wrong, but I can promise you that if I'm pointed out about it, that I will come up here and I will correct it the next week. I swear that to you. The second way that we deal with false teaching is we look to church history. If you can do a Google search of common heresies, And you can see over the course of the history of the church, what are some of the false things that have crept in? What is Gnosticism or all these kinds of things? And how has the church dealt with them? You can actually read. In the 1700s, this became a really prevalent issue, and the church rebuked it by, by saying, no, Scripture tells us this. And you can actually see how the church has dealt with false teachers. And I'll tell you this. Here's what'll be interesting. If you go in and research ancient heresies, and then you look at some of the church craziness today, you're going to see a lot of the same stuff repackaged over and over. Health and wealth gospel is nothing new. It's repackaged heresy from ancient times. And if you look at some of those, you'll be able to spot it. You'll be able to see, wow, that's just this in new clothing. Sit at home. Do those researches. Check those things out. Familiarize yourselves And then finally this, look for telltale signs. What do I mean by this? Here's 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, or who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. What do we see? He tells us a couple things. Number one, a lot of times when you have false teaching, there's greed attached to it. So when someone teaches you, ask yourself this, are they benefiting from what they're saying? When you listen to me, if you did what I said, would would there be more benefit to me? Now, yes, if I preach the word of God faithfully, our church may grow, and that might be nice. I will enjoy the fact that our church grows, but that's not a benefit to me. I don't get a new Lamborghini because the church grew, right? 
Unless you want, no, I'm kidding. I'm joking, I'm joking. I did try to negotiate for a private jet when they were interviewing me as a pastor, but I was told it's not in the budget, so. Uh, um, if I'm ever five minutes late to church, it's because I didn't get my jet, so. But, but that, that's the thing to ask. A lot of times, false teachers are motivated by greed, and so you see these folks online that'll proclaim stuff. Well, why? Because the first spring water's free. They're like drug dealers. The second toolkit's gonna cost you. You get bombarded. If you would just sow a seed of faith, send me $1,000 and you'll somehow make 10. They don't care if you actually make 10. They care that they got 1,000, right? And so some of, the, some of the ways that you spot false teachers in small and little ways is who's benefiting? When someone's teaching you, are they building themselves up or are they building the church up? When you walk away from a sermon, do you go, wow, look at them. They're so great. Or do you walk away and say, wow, look at Christ. He's so great. What's the motivation there? Number two, a lot of times false teachers will appeal to what Peter says is sensuality. I I like to use the word emotion. So in other words, are you called upon to do things for emotional reasons? Is there an appeal to your senses of emotion? What you feel is good or bad, right or wrong? Or is there an appeal to what scripture actually says? If you go and listen to some of the crazy churches' sermons, the megachurches in this country who are preaching the health and wealth gospel, you can go a whole sermon and never hear the word, the word Christ. It's like the book of Ruth. God's not even mentioned. <laughs> By the way, God is in the book of Ruth, even though he's not explicitly mentioned. So don't hear me say Ruth is, doesn't have God in it. Um, just not by name. Right. So third one is this. A lot of times false teachers will cherry pick the Bible. When you hear a reference made, you know, so they'll say, you know, Joshua was, was bold and courageous or, you know, dare to be a Daniel because, well, maybe it's worth always reading the scripture that surrounds their cherry picked verse. And a lot of times what you'll find is those things are taken way out of context. Right? If you read the breadth of scripture, if someone comes to you and say, you know, you know, first, first Peter says this. Well, maybe you should read the whole chapter, or even better, the whole letter. And a lot of times you'll see that they just pick these things out that were true for one point and one time, and they try to apply it in such a broad way that it helps their cause. And so a lot of times false teachers, they'll cherry pick. You'll see them preach the same two books over and over and over and over again. Right? Everything comes out of you know, books that are just meant to change behavior and not the heart. They won't preach whole books, really, ever. Right? It's part of why I like to teach through books of Scripture. That's why we went through the book of Acts from start to finish. Because one of the ways that we can make sure that we preach the whole counsel of God is if we just preach through the Word of God. Whatever comes, comes. Whatever passage is next, is next. Right? That's why a lot of Presbyterian churches will do expositional preaching. That's why I like to do, not always, but most times, expositional preaching. And then number four, they will deny or downplay the basics of faith. Um, and here's where our denomination is particularly helpful. And so I want, I want to put these things up uh, and just kind of close a little bit with these. The EPC has this thing called Essentials of Faith. Uh, and many of you have seen this. Some of you may not have seen this. But we have, you know, the Westminster Confession is this, this thing that like, as, as your pastor, I have to agree to. Your elders have to subscribe to it. Um, but to be a member of this church, you have to actually affirm the essentials of the faith. And so what the EPC has done, and says, here's what we as a church believe broadly that we do specifically. You know, we do baptism different than, 
You know, perhaps Baptists or Catholics do it and those kinds of things. But we wouldn't say that a Baptist church that does it differently than us is not Christian. The essentials of faith are a, a minimal standard for what it actually means to be a follower of Christ. And so we would say, if you can't affirm these things, chances are that you probably are hearing, wor working out, teaching, or living a false gospel to some degree. So here, here's what they are. I'm actually going to go through them. We believe in one God, the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things, infinitely perfect and eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To him be all honor, glory, and praise forever. So we believe that there's one God. You can't believe there's two. He's sovereign. He creates and sustains everything. He didn't make the world and then leave and set it spinning. He stays. Right? He's infinitely perfect, and he's always existed, all three. Jesus didn't just come out of thin air. Right? What does it say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's talking about Jesus. Before the creation of the world, Christ and the Holy Spirit were there, eternally together. Number two, Jesus Christ, the living Word, became flesh through his miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit and his virgin birth. He who is the true God became true man, united in one person forever. He died on the cross to sacrifice for our sins according to the scriptures. And on the third day he arose bodily from the dead. He ascended into heaven where at the right hand of the majesty on high, he now is our high priest and mediator. To be a Christian, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is real, that he's fully God, fully man, that he did come, that he paid for our sins, that he rose from death. And then he now sits and rules and reigns as our mediator. Right? Number three, the Holy Spirit has come to glorify Christ and to apply the saving work of Christ to our hearts. He convicts us of sin and he draws us to the Savior. How do we come to know Christ? How does he actually apply grace to us through the Holy Spirit? The Spirit indwells our hearts. He gives new life to us. He empowers and imparts gifts to us for service. And he instructs and guides us in all truth and seals us for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is the way that we have application of faith, that we feel the presence of God, that we feel the peace and the calm that he brings, that the way that we're convicted of sin and sanctified more and more into his likeness, it's the Holy Spirit that does that work, that applies the work of Christ to our lives. Number four, being estranged from God and condemned by our sinfulness, our salvation is wholly dependent upon the work of God's free grace. God credits his righteousness to those who put their faith in Christ alone for their salvation. You don't have anything to do with the fact that you're saved. You didn't even choose God without him first choosing you and helping you to come to him. You did nothing to contribute to your faith. You say, well, I gave my life. You gave your life to Christ because he came to you in the spirit and worked and, and brought him into your heart and allowed you to see and choose him freely. You wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise. Right? Only such are born of the Holy Spirit and receive Jesus Christ, become children of God and heirs to eternal life. Number five, the true church is composed of all persons who through faith in Christ and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit are united together in the body of Christ. So what's the true church? There are people in our churches that are not real Christians. Now, don't, this isn't a, you shouldn't question your faith if you've given your life. This isn't about that. But there are people who come just to be part of something, and they come for a time, and then they leave. And so if we're wondering, well, who is the true church? It is all people who have put their saving faith in Jesus Christ. Not everybody that has sat in a pew at some point in their life is going to go to heaven. 
and live in glory. It's not about your church attendance. There's the visible church, the people we see, and there's the invisible true church. And that's what what it says here. Number six, Jesus Christ will come again to the earth personally, visibly, and bodily to judge the living and the dead and to consummate history and the eternal plan of God. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So Christ is coming back. There's a second time. We can argue about exactly how it looks. We can read the book of Revelation and ask five bajillion questions. But he is coming back to rule and to reign in a final judgment type of way. And number seven, the Lord Jesus Christ commands all believers to proclaim the gospel throughout the world and to make disciples of all nations. Obedience to the Great Commission requires total commitment to him who loved us and gave himself for us. He calls us to a life of self-denying love and service, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the final thing is, as Christians, we believe that we are called to be the ones that carry the gospel forward. Those are the very basics. So if you're wondering, how can I start to live out a gospel life that is biblically sound, that is doctrinally sound, you start with this, and you just continue to mold and shape and read and study. One of the things that we're going to do with the new year uh, in 2022 is as a church, we're going to invite anybody who wants to, to be, be part of this whole Bible in a year reading plan. And as a church together, we're going to seek to, to read the whole Bible in one year together. And we'll have an app that we'll use that's it's really good about guiding us in, in what to read each day. It breaks it down beautifully. It even has these videos that will introduce certain books to you. So as you start to read the book of Exodus, you get like eight minutes on what is going on in the book of Exodus. Because there's some books in Scripture that you probably are going to want an overview before you just dive in. But it actually walks you through understanding the theology and what's happening as you read Scripture. And so we'll start that when we get into 2022. And my goal and strive would be that by the end of that year, that every person in this room has read the Scriptures from cover to cover for themselves. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have ever done that? How many of you have read the entire Bible? How many of you have walked with Christ for, for maybe 15, 20, 30 years? But if you're honest with yourself, you say, I haven't read half of it. I really haven't. Right? Don't let the guilt of that consume you, but let it shape you and change you and cause you to grow and want to do better and be better and learn and grow together in a community of faith. Right? My hope here would be that uh, in my time as your pastor, however long it is, if it's a year or two years, five years, two decades, whatever, that, that not only would I stand up here and teach you scripture, but that I would teach you to love scripture on your own. I'll call that a success. Right? If I'm the one time a week that you're hearing the word of God, man, I would encourage you to jump into other places. Why do you think Paul starts with this? I know this isn't a sexy topic. Today we're going to talk about church doctrine. (laughs) Why would he start with this? Because Paul understands that what we believe about the word and how we engage with it and how we wrestle with it and, and, and the system that we come up with to explain it. That's all doctrine is. It's just a way of explaining what scripture says, right? Whatever that is, is going to influence and branch out to every other area of our life. Whatever you believe and how firmly you believe it, 
will influence how you conduct yourself in every other way. It will influence the way that you think about the world and the nature of it. It will influence the way that you think about dealing with people that are non-Christians. It will influence the way that you treat your, your money, your calendar, and your talents. Right? Everything else, your character, your morals, what you'll call right or wrong in this world, everything else that he's going to talk about in Timothy and Titus, start with this, because out of what we believe flows how we think and act and speak. And so before we do anything else, before we deal with our character and all these other things, we first have to get our doctrine straight. It's the thing that isn't exciting, but we start with so that we can do the rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, for your word is truth. We thank you that you've given us your word, that you saw fit to reveal to us your nature and your character and how we are to follow you, how we are to think about this world that you've created and created us within. We praise you that we can open a book sitting in our house and sit and read the words of the creator of the universe. And that we can know everything that it is that you want us to know. Father, we confess that we often don't get excited about that, even though it's mind-blowing. We pray that your spirit would stir up in us a passion for your word and your truth. That we would be a people consumed by it. That all we do and think and say would flow out of your gospel truth would come from the fact that you redeem us and that you create us as new people and that you call us your own. Give us a fervency and a desire for your word. Lord, let us, let us not be content until we go home and read it for ourselves. Let there be an excitement that comes out of it as we discover what it is that you have for us. Be with us this week as we seek to serve and be the city on a hill in all of our places of, of work and school and everywhere else that we go. Keep us safe. Keep us alert. Allow your spirit to give us wisdom so that we can decipher the things that are false from the things that are true so that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said,